Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. This is the Commonwealth Club of California. We're online at CommonwealthClub.org, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And I'm Mary Marcy. I'm the president of Dominican University of California, and I am your very privileged moderator for today's program. I'm going to do a brief introduction of the, I was surprised to find, still junior, technically, (laughs) senator from California. Doesn't seem like it. Uh, And then we'll have a chance to have a conversation. Listen, at my age, it's a compliment. To describe Senator Barbara Boxer as iconic, tireless, effective, powerful, is not rhetoric. It is, in fact, inadequate. It doesn't do service to her career as a public servant, as a leader, or as a role model. But today, as she prepares to retire from her current position in public service, I have the feeling public service will go on, we'll try to do some service in return to her legacy and hear directly from the senator herself. And because she is still our senator, we'll also ask her about some current events. (laughs) We might be a little hungry for that conversation today. So quickly, since 1983, Barbara Boxer has represented the state of California in both houses of Congress. She spent nearly a decade in the House of Representatives. In 1992, in the wake of the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill drama, she was one of a few women, not enough, but a few elected to the US Senate in the electoral year of the woman. During her tenure, which being from Marin, I have to say, started in Marin on the Board of Supervisors, she has consistently fought for the rights of women and consumers, championed LGBTQ issues, spearheaded efforts in education reform, secured new environmental protections, and taken tough, principled stands on foreign affairs. Senator Boxer, a Brooklyn, New York native, is a leading voice in both California and national politics with policy accomplishments in statewide, national, and global arenas. She has made her mark as an advocate, blending compassion and straight talk, candor and compromise throughout her decades in public life. We are delighted she has returned to the Commonwealth Club to talk about her memoir, The Art of Tough, Fearlessly Facing Politics and Life. And perhaps she can offer some of her patented candor in light of our current political environment. So Senator Boxer, welcome home to San Francisco. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much. I, I do want to start with the book, and I, uh, we were chatting a little bit in the green room. We could spend a lot of time uh, talking about things that you've seen and experienced in politics, but I want to start literally with the book. It has a great title, The Art of Tough. So talk to me about The Art of Tough and where that title came from and what it means. I will. Um, well, first I want to say, throughout my career, especially in the later years, people would keep coming up to me and say, 
how did you get to be so tough? You know, I say, I'm not tough. I'm just doing what I think is right, you know, and so on and so forth. And I kind of dismissed it. It kept on happening. And I started a little collection of the things people said about me, the right-wingers, and um, had this. It, it began to grow. And so um, I took a look at the thing, and I actually opened the book with these quotes. Uh, one of my least favorite uh, is Ann Coulter, <laughs> who said of me, Barbara Boxer is the perfect Democrat, female and learning disabled. So it's, and that's one of the milder ones that you'll read about. And so I realized, you know, I guess, I guess I'm tough. And so as I put together all the stories, it took three years to get it all together. I was fortunate enough to have a friend who's a wonderful literary agent. And um, I said to her, I want to have tough in the title because but I'm just struggling with it. So I had, why I've had to be tough. <laughs> and why you have to be tough. <laughs> and it was boring, and it didn't work. And so out of the blue, Kimberly Cameron called me and said, I got it, the art of tough. And the minute she said it, I knew it. She's here. Could you stand up, Kimberly, please? Because I want them to see you. She's in Marin County resident and the best but it the, it was like one of those things once she came up with it we knew it was the right thing because there is an art to it or else you're kind of like someone else who's in the news <laughs> <laughs> and that's not tough that's a bully and never mind we'll get into it later <laughs> You do a great job in the book of describing the difference between being tough and just being cruel and bullying and nasty, though. And you have some wonderful anecdotes from early days all the way up through unexpected alliances, like an alliance recently with Mitch McConnell. Yeah. So you, you want to talk a little bit about how you manage to hold the line when you need to and you can still work with folks like that? <sighs> yes, I'll tell you the story. <laughs> First of all, there's a really great line. I, In the course of publicizing this book, I did the Chelsea, was it the Chelsea Handler show? No, 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 Samantha B. You know Samantha B. She's so clever. So on the show, she said, well, in your book, you said before you finally did some great work with Mitch McConnell, you didn't talk to him for 20 years. Is that true? And I said, absolutely. I, I said hello and goodbye, but I really didn't talk to him. And she looked at me and said, that must have been the best 20 years of your life. <laughs> <laughs> but um, part of being tough is having a sense of humor. You better have a sense of humor. And I write a lot about, in my case, I write lyrics to songs, and you'll, re you'll see them in the book, because it's kind of almost a history of all the issues uh, that in order to just kind of get off steam but do it with a sense of humor, I used limericks and, 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 and rhymes like that. But Mitch McConnell. So what happened is when I first got into the Senate, it was the year of the woman, and as I go into great detail, the only reason I got into the United States Senate, obviously most of you voted for me, and thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I say most because I don't know, but 
the fact is, um, I got there and I got the votes because people looked at the United States Senate when Anita Hill uh, appeared before the Judiciary Committee. There wasn't one woman on the Judiciary Committee. There wasn't one person of color on the Judiciary Committee. And people said, well, is that just the committee? And then they looked at the Senate. There were two women in the Senate out of 100. So to make a long story short, and I do go on, forgive me, I'm a senator. Um, <laughs> to make a long story short, I got in there because of Anita's courage. That's, I'm very humble about that. Without her, no way would California have elected two women. So when I get there, a story breaks that Bob Packwood, a senator from Oregon, long revered liberal Republican, had not been a nice person to at least 23 different women, had harassed and worse. So it, I figured, well, I'm brand new here. I'll just be quiet and watch them kick him out. And, and I get there, and there's this huge cover-up going on. And it falls to me, a freshman, to become the bad person and say, but, 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 wait a minute. This is wrong. Well, Mitch McConnell, you have to read the book, threatened me in ways that were pretty awful. And so, as I write in the book, forgiveness is part of the art of tough. You have to forgive. However, if someone really breaks your heart, if someone tears it apart, you can say hello and goodbye, but that's it. So he was my hello and goodbye friend for 20 years until something weird happened. In 2015, we became, for reasons too complex, the only two people who could have saved the highway trust fund and all the jobs that go with it. You know, the gas tax goes into the highway trust fund. We fix the roads, the bridges. We now have 66,000 bridges that are structurally deficient. We were the only two people to save it. And we did. We, uh, we did. And we worked together. And when it was over, uh, we got a great bill and I bought him a tie with bridges all over it, and he got me a slugger bat. Um, I guess he felt confident I wouldn't use it on him at that point. And that said, we hit a home run or something really lovely like that. And we had a good time doing it, but 20 years because of the horrible situation with Packwood, and so it's an untold story that I tell. And it's a, it's a great story, and there's, uh, you know, there, there's a theme there about always knowing what it is you're, you're trying to accomplish and who you're trying to serve. In the, in the process of, of dealing with what was very nasty personal attacks, when you needed to work with him to get something done on behalf of the country, you did. It's very powerful. I, yeah. I want to go back to the... Um, to that era for a second, because the, one of the things that happened in the year of the woman was there was a great uh, line, I think you or, or Senator Feinstein started coining it on the campaign trail that 2% is great for milk, but it's not good for the uh, US Senate. Right. What, what we forget about sometimes is what happened immediately after that. And part of the reason, which I certainly didn't know about until I read the book, part of the reason you understood that you had to stand up if Senator Packwood was going to be held to account was because of another woman in the Senate, and there weren't very many of them. But you had an interesting exchange with Senator Mikulski. Oh, yeah. Barbara Mikulski 
We love each other for a lot of reasons, not the least of which we can look eye to eye, because we're both... <laughs> you know, I'm five feet tall, I tower over her. In my heels, in my heels. Um, I love Barbara. She is remarkable, funny to the core, and tough to the core. And Barbara was on the ethics committee during this Packwood situation. And um, when I knew I had to push publicly for public hearings, it was two years and nothing was happening to him. Um, Mitch, gave, Mitch McConnell gave Barbara Mikulski a message for me, which was, you tell Boxer to do this or else. And I, the or else part you have to read about. And um, can't give you everything. Um, <laughs> and so I said, that's, that's his message to me? So, of course, I go right up to him, the art of tough. And, and I look up at him and I say, I just got your message from Senator Mikulski. Are you, are you threatening me? Uh, are you threatening me? And he said, I'm promising you. So after that, I knew I had to push and push and push for these public hearings. Because you knew once 23 women came forward, that was... And that's why they were trying to hide it. And so I was in the dark because now I have been the chairman and the ranking member of the Ethics Committee for many years now, but I was brand new then. They can't talk. We can't talk about anything. We're on the Ethics Committee. So I was, after this experience, I didn't know what I could say to Barbara or anything, but I just said, I went up to her and I said, Barbara, I know you can't say anything, but I just got through <laughs> talking to Mitch McConnell, and I'm going to take this on. I don't care what. I'm going with it. I'm going to push and force this public, these public hearings and the vote. And she never said a word. She looked at me. And we were such good friends because we had served in the house. She just gave me one of those looks of... You go, girl. <laughs> but she never said a word, so she never broke a rule. And I went ahead and I forced it, and the rest is history. He was out of there in 15 minutes after that. <laughs> we'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. 
Live your authentic life. A special message by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Sines, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit, particularly uh, on the eve of, of, not quite the eve, but the maybe the twilight of this election. Uh, the, when you were first elected, uh, it was a very big deal to try and get more women in Congress. Uh, has that changed things? How have you seen things shift or not with the number of women that are in Congress now? What I tried to prove in the book as I take my readers into the back rooms, is that who's in the room makes all the difference in the world, as well as who's not in the room, who's been left out of the room. And um, I'll give you an amazing example. We have two African-American men in the United States Senate, Cory Booker and um, Tim Scott. Tim Scott. They both, they both spoke. Corey to the caucus I'm in and Senator Scott to the body and talked about their life as African-American men. It just breaks your heart. A Rhodes Scholar, a U.S. Senator, stopped even now, even wearing their Senate pin, one officer in, in D.C. said to Senator Scott, um, he, he said, who are you? He says, he goes like this. He shows his pin. And the officer says, I know the pin. I don't know you. And, and so the point that I'm making is, who's in the room makes a difference? And we only have two African Americans in the United States Senate. So they're not in a lot of the rooms, but they are pushing hard for criminal justice reform. And, we, and there is a good bipartisan bill on criminal justice reform, only because they're in the Senate, because they're witness to the reality of life, just as I am witness to the reality of what women go through when we're not paid for equal work, when we're told that we can't exercise our reproductive freedom, when we're harassed or whatever. If you're not in the room, it's not a representative government. So I think the fact that we now have 20 women out of 100, and that is progress, but it is not enough. We need 50. That would be the right thing. But the fact that there are 20 of us, and are we making a difference? I would say to you, absolutely we are. And I would also say to you, it just so happens, and it's almost a surprise, that if you look at the women in the Senate and what we've accomplished, we tend to be the ones that can forge the agreements. And I, I mean, I could go into a chapter and verse, but if you look at the progress in some of the things the last few years, you know, whether it's budget negotiation, whether it's uh, you know, agriculture, whether it's uh, you know, the highway bill that I was able to do, 
the water resources bill. But you can look across, and Diane, with some of her uh, intelligence, uh, some of her legislation, it just seems to be that we are pretty good at that. And I mean, I would argue in general, and believe me, believe me, this isn't true of all women, especially like not the one who can see Russia from her house. But <laughs> the point I'm making, the point I'm making is in general, you will see that women tend to be able to bring people together and not care about the credit as much. That's an important point. And you had an extraordinary experience earlier in your career in terms of who's in the room and what you've seen. You went to Israel and, and I believe it was uh, Morocco. Yes. Early on. Yes. Uh, and had a, a, a pretty powerful witnessing experience both for yourself and for another congressman that was there. Could you talk, could you talk sure, about that a bit? Of course I can. Um, this is in a way one of my most heartfelt parts of the book. When I talk about um, John Lewis. Um, and I really do tear up. A man who went through hell just to try and make the point that we're all equal, who got beaten up, who has a plate in his head, but who is the most optimistic human being I've ever met. And my great joy of traveling to the Middle East with John, he was the only... African-American on the trip, was a house member, and I was the only Jewish person on the trip. And without going into too much detail, the king of Morocco, and by the way, it is good to be king, <laughs> the, uh, the most opulent setting you'd ever find yourself in. I mean, people with curlicue shoes giving you tea. And uh, If the Commonwealth Club might try that, you'd <laughs> you get a lot more speakers, and you have, and we're in the room. We're in the room, and and we've all got leather-bound books and hand-dipped candies, and they were rather shocked that a woman was in the room, and of course I was in the room because I was part of the delegation. Tony Coelho, the leader of our trip, who do you remember him? He was from California, from from the Central Valley. And Tony said uh, to the king, we really need your help. You've always been a friend of Israel. We need your help. We have to stop this intifada. We need to all get together. We need to find a way to stop the tension between Israel and the Palestinians, at which point the king of Morocco, supposedly one of the best friends Israel ever had, you know, he starts to rant against the Jewish people. And over and over again, he kept saying, the Jewish mind, the Jewish mind. And so, of course, I stood up. The art of tough. I didn't say anything. I just stood up. And when I stood up, Tony stood up. And then everyone stood up, and we walked out. And we went to the van. So I'm sitting in the van. I'll never forget this. It's about 10 colleagues. And one colleague says, you know, Barbara, you really overreacted. And I said, I, I said, I was calm. I said, I did not overreact. I understand the tensions here, but I did not overreact. I never overreact to that. I think I've been very down the middle on this. And another one chimed in. Oh, no, you ruined the whole night. 
you know, we were supposed to be with the king and we had all these plans and our spouses were coming and we were going to do this. It was going to be the best night. You overreacted and you ruined it. And it goes on. Finally, a voice comes, ironically, from the back of the van. And the voice says, Barbara's right. I know discrimination when I see it. And it was John Lewis. And the tears started coming down. And how much do I love that man? He did not have to say this. He was a new member. Did not have to do this. And after I wrote the book, and I, I never took any notes in my whole life, I've counted on my brain to retain wonderful, incredible, or terrible things <laughs> and sort of push out the rest. Now, I don't know how much has been pushed out, but <laughs> a lot remained. And when I wrote the story down, I wanted to make sure I was accurate. So I went over to the house to find him, and he said exactly what happened. He said, I'll never forget it. And we hugged. And then he also wrote a wonderful blurb for my, for my book. But it was a remarkable story because it shows what a hero is. No cameras, no lights, nothing to gain. And it shows the art of tough. He didn't say anything bad to my colleagues. He just said, Barbara's right. I know discrimination when I see it. Just like that. End of story. Very powerful. Yeah. Very powerful. Well, since uh, we may go back there, but I, I, since we're in the neighborhood of the Middle East, and because it's a great, it's a great uh, story, a great anecdote, uh, I want to go back for just a second to um, when you first ran for office, because like a lot of women uh, at that era, initially it was your husband that maybe was going to run for office, yeah. and then it, then then he decided actually you were going to run. Um, and then after, after being elected, there were some thoughts about who you had become and who you had been. So can you talk a little <laughs> bit about how that happened? I know. Um, well, it's actually a funnier story than that. This was way back in 1971, 1972. How many of you lived in Marin then? A few of you might remember. But So in 1971, there was a big um, organization that started Marin Alternative, and it was to fight for the environment and women's rights and equal rights and against the war in Vietnam. And it was this very progressive group. And so there was this lovely county supervisor, Peter Argoni, who was a lovely man. And he, um, unfortunately, he got in my sights, but he beat me, the only race I ever lost. But <laughs> what happened was this group of activists came to our home and they said, Stu, my husband, an attorney, we'd like you to run for that seat, the supervisor's seat against Peter Aragoni. He said, oh, that's exciting. He said, how much does it pay? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, $11,000 a year. And he said, um, well, let's see. I got Barbara, I got the two, I don't think I can do it. And then Stu looks at me and says, why don't you do it? Like, why don't you do it? And I said, I, I'm not kidding. I said, me? And he said, yeah. I said, there's only been one woman county supervisor since 1850, Vera Schultz. What are my chances? And he said, well, you know, it might be interesting. Well, anyhow, 
it was a fascinating experience. And I did win the primary, and then I can't tell an extremely funny story about the man who dropped out of the primary, who I beat in the primary, and who, who before uh, the primary came to try to talk me out of running and drop me, get me out of the race. It's a funny, funny story. But at the end of the day, I got elected. I didn't get elected, but I, I got to be prominent in the county, and I got to be a newspaper reporter. And I took all the lessons I had learned, and Steve McNamara from the Pacific Sun taught me how to write. He, I said, I don't. I said I do press releases, but you know, how do you do this? He gave me a really interesting tip, which I put in the book, which is, in those years we had typewriters, <laughs> and so if there are any young people here, I'll explain what that is later. But <laughs> we had typewriters, and he said, "You're really good." At talking and giving speeches. I said, thank you. He said, just put a piece of paper in the typewriter and talk to it. It was the best thing anyone ever told me. It's what my book is. It's just talking. When you read the book, people come up to me and say, I feel I just was in the living room and you were telling me all these stories because it's kind of the way I write. But in the book, my favorite line is, once I got into politics, I said, people ask me, your husband, how did he take to all this? Because we met, I was in college. I was a cheerleader. In college. And um, so he said, um, how did he deal with this? I said, I don't know. He married, you know, he married Debbie Reynolds and he woke up with gold in my ear. <laughs> and you're still together. And we're still together, right? <laughs> I could ask you lots of questions about the book. I may reference it again, but I want to make sure that we get to audience sure, questions as well. And um, one actually ties really nicely back to um, your friend John Lewis and most more recent events. In fact, I think it's the reason that you couldn't be here at your originally scheduled date, yes. because you needed to go back and vote on gun control. That's correct. And he staged an extraordinary, extraordinary event on the floor of the House. So it's a two part question. The first is, what were your thoughts about that event on the floor of the House? And the second is, is there really any chance for gun control? We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now, because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. 
I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. I was very proud of what they did over there because extraordinary times call for extraordinary actions. And how many of these shootings are we going to sit through and just keep revoting and keep killing these bills and allowing weapons of war out there? Uh which even the family of the individual who invented the assault weapon said it was only meant for military use, law enforcement. Um, so I went over to the house to see John and to see my colleagues. And I thought it was a cry for help. That's appropriate. What do we, you know, you, you want to follow all the rules of, demeanor and decorum, and we do. But every once in a while, something like this happens now. They still don't, haven't had a vote. They just want to have a vote on something simple, like don't let terrorists get their hands on weapons. And the argument is, oh, but you might be on the list by mistake. Well, you, there are ways to work on that. If you have to wait to get your weapon, if, or if you were in an extraordinary situation, there are ways that that's just not an argument. And um, they can't get a vote. So I applauded what they did. Until people make this a voting issue our way, because 90% of the people agree with us, 90, but they're all convinced on, oh, let's vote on transgender bathrooms or something ridiculous that has zero impact, you know, on our lives. Uh, we'll never get this done. So, so people have to find out where their congressperson or senator stands on this. And, you know, I just have to say, Dianne Feinstein was so right with her ban on assault weapons that we got passed in 94, and it, in 2014, it expired. Um, and you see what's going on in these open carry states. In Cleveland, they came out with the rules. You can't carry a tennis ball, but you can, with a permit, have a carry open carry gun. But you can't carry a tennis ball. It could be dangerous. You could throw it at somebody and hurt them. The last I checked, you can't get a tennis ball through a, a, a chest protector that the police wear. So it's, it's crazy. And what was the second part? What do I think is going to happen? Mm -hmm. That's up to the people of the country. 
And I say that not as a cop-out at all, but it's the truth, until the people start voting on this issue. It's, they're gonna, that's what's going to happen. And all of this violence that is beyond our ability to even absorb. I was talking to someone who's a psychologist, and I said to her, you can't, in a way, watch it anymore because how much grief, how much sadness, how much angst can people actually carry around with them and still function? I mean, that's, I mean, how, how could you look at what happened in Nice? That they, this man ran over babies and carriages and dolls and absorb that. So we have to be smart about what we're doing, which is a multi-pronged thing. We need police community relations. We need community police. Nobody should have to kiss their family member goodbye, be they a police officer of any color or a black teenager, and and say, oh my God, am I gonna see you tonight? And look, that could always, it's always in the back of our minds that something bad could happen, but in the front of our minds, this is unacceptable. So we need to face it, restore the faith in the community. Community policing is something I started when I was a county supervisor. It was so great. We took people out of the precinct that was the central police precinct, we put them in the neighborhoods. They knew who the bad actors were. They knew who the good leaders were. The police have to reflect the makeup of the community, just like the Senate has to reflect the makeup of the country. And we have to defeat Al-Qaeda and ISIL or ISIS or Daesh, whatever you call them. They keep changing it every day. We have to defeat the terrorists. And we are taking away their caliphate. They've lost a lot of it. And we have to have better relations in the community and better intelligence in the community. And that doesn't mean going door to door asking someone if they believe in Sharia law. <laughs> it means winning over the confidence and the caring and the trust of the community. And I know I've gone on, but it's a multifaceted question. These issues are pervasive, and they will be front and center in the presidential race, and I know who the person is who's gonna have the answers. And it's gonna be a she, <laughs> not a he. So we have a question that's very closely related to that, or that you, you actually um, anticipated, I would say. Uh, it says, Brexit has shown that a protest vote can happen um, how can we reach Americans who feel the institutions and current system don't work for them, since it doesn't seem to be working for everyone? Um, I find those kind of statements to be cop-outs. Oh, the system is broke. Fix it. Fix it. Vote. Get involved. Not for some fringe person. That doesn't help us. Get your issue front and center. And work, make sure, this is a democracy. This is a really strong democracy. And when people say, they say things, and I talk about this in the book, they're all alike. Like Ralph Nader said, Republicrats, 
How absurd. How ridiculous. Just ask a parent of someone who lost a child in the Iraq war. Was it really everyone was alike, Republicrats? I don't think so. And look, look, no candidates are perfect. Let's be clear. The only perfect candidate for you is you. Because there is nobody else like you. There's nobody else who sees the world like you. There's no one else who's had your experience, and you know what you think is right. You're the perfect candidate for you, but it doesn't work that way. Because you're not the candidate, I'm not the candidate, but you have to gravitate toward the one that maybe is 90% like you, recognizing no one is perfect. And then all this thing, but are they authentic? Yeah. Donald Trump is authentic. He's an authentic bully. He's an authentic demagogue. He's an authentic insulter. And Hillary Clinton is an authentic intelligent person who's not a backslapper, who gets in the room and gets it done. And not everybody has the personality of Bernie, you know, who I love, or me. We're from Brooklyn. We have a different personality. <laughs> Some of us are from the Midwest, and we have a different personality. <laughs> and it's not who's authentic. It's about who do you fight for? What do you believe in? Are you ready to get the job done? Can you roll up your sleeves? You're smart. So sometimes I think people just ask questions that are irrelevant. We are not a perfect nation. That's why our founders said a more perfect union. It certainly wasn't perfect when it started. Oh, my God. And just getting the right to vote for blacks, for women. You know, I urge you, as we approach the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote, go read about what it was like. Go see some movies like Iron Jawed Angels. Go see what it was like. I stand on the shoulders of women who were force-fed in a Democratic presidency of Woodrow Wilson. He was annoyed. He had promised them the vote. Then World War I happened. He said, too bad. You're a distraction. Get out of my view. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. And so he threw them in jail. They went on a hunger strike, and he force-fed them. And every name in the book that they were called and that a lot of women have been called, and that certain women are still being called. This is a country that moves in the right direction, but it's very hard. It's a battle. It's a fight. And this election is so critical because it's about whether we keep on moving forward together, pulling forward together, or turn on each other with fear. And so, that was a long answer to a short question, but <laughs> there's so much involved in what we're, what we're dealing with today. It was an impassioned answer, and it reminds me that uh, you talk a little bit in the book about you know, being present when then Secretary, well, not before Secretary Clinton, when then Hillary Clinton, First Lady, uh, decided to run for U.S. Senate. And so you've seen her in the process of making that decision, and you've seen her run for major office uh, at that level and watched her in action. Are there things that uh, you can tell us about 
candidate Clinton that we don't see all the time, we don't know all the time, uh, that are, um, we, we think this is a person we know because she's been in the public eye for so long, but you've, you know her in a much more personal right. way. So. Well, in an effort to keep certain things under wraps, I will be speaking at the convention about that. And so I know. So, so I don't want to say too much because I want to surprise you. And, but I do want to say this. Take keeping it away from the personal level, and there is a strong personal bond. Um, when Hillary ran for the Senate, it was a tough race. I come from New York. They're tough there. They don't even use the art of tough. They just use the tough of tough. <laughs> and they put you through a ringer that you, you know, if you can come out of that alive, you're strong. She came through. She, remember, she moved into New York. New York had a history of electing stars like Bobby Kennedy. So they were open to it, but they, it was like, prove it to me. She listens really well. Hillary listens really well. And she's very smart. So when she started to run, she, everyone went, oh, I don't know, carpetbagger. By the time she was done, she got elected. Right after that, 9-11 happened. She was one of the two senators from New York. She was, I don't know what to call it, heartbroken. It's more than that. Shocked. And she had to pick up the pieces. And she went down to ground zero. And I know what happened because I was and still am on the Environment and Public Works Committee. At that time, I was a senior member. Then I became chairman. And she, we had the Bush administration before us because Hillary kept saying, the air is toxic down there. The air is toxic. It's dangerous. And the Bushies kept saying, no, it's fine. It's not a problem. And she just got independent reports and pushed and pushed and pushed and started the whole process of making sure that our first responders there got lifelong help. I saw that. When she ran... For re-election, she got 66% of the vote. When she was finished, and she became Secretary of State on the way out, she had 67% approval in the nation. She's been pummeled like nobody else. And I am just saying, you want a strong president, you got one in her. That's how I feel. And a brief reminder for the radio audience that this is the Commonwealth Club of California, and we're talking to U.S. Senator Barbara Boxer, Democrat from California, about her work, her legacy, and her new book, The Art of Tough, Fearlessly Facing Politics and Life. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards 
Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. We have a few, few folks who want to hear more about, um, I'm not sure they're ready to let you go as senator. Uh, they, <laughs> they want to know what you, what's, uh, your priorities are uh, for the rest of your tenure. And there's a specific question, a more general one. The specific is um, the Supreme Court confirmation. Mm. Do you see any possibility there before you leave office? Okay. Uh, I'll just keep doing my work every single day. Wake up in the morning, get the casework. People need me. Issues. There's a new issue now that came. Uh, this, the, there's a bill to change foster care. It's pretty darn good, but it hurts our state because it takes away the money from congregate housing, which is something that we've become really good at. Tough issue. It's you know, the whole country versus California, and maybe New York has the same problem, a couple of others. So every day I wake up, there's something else. And so I am on it, all over it, until the minute I am no longer in the Senate. But I do want to tell you that I am not, I don't, I'm not planning to die anytime soon. I want to live and continue my work. Now, it would be from a different place, but I'm not going away. So you'll hear from me. I can't lay out what it is because I, I don't know exactly what form it will take, but I can tell you I will be out there. So that is really good news for some of you and really bad news for Ann Coulter, <laughs> but that's <laughs> kind of the way it is. Um, so legacy-wise, we just keep working and working and working. Certainly this police community relations issue is front and center with me. I gave a big speech on it. If you want to see it, it's on my, you can go up to my web page. It was a speech I wrote every word myself. Uh, I, I think I could just talk about prejudice for a long time, but I think discrimination is the stupidest thing ever. And anyone who discriminates, I hate to say it, I have to say, the elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. You cannot decide what's in a person's heart by looking at what they look like. It doesn't, it is, makes no sense. We're all God's children. And that's it, and the beauty of it. 
the diversity of it is so should be celebrated. So I just go, it's hard for me to keep the art of tough going, but I do because you can be bombastic, but it doesn't bring a person along if you can prove your point. That's what I'm trying to do. Now, in terms of the Supreme Court, I don't know what we have to do, again, to make that a voting issue. People don't seem to forget, and that's okay because we have lots of things to do in our life, that we have three equal branches of government. They always pay attention to president more than any other, less so the legislature, the Congress. And they seem to forget that anything that we pass and get signed into law can be overturned by a court. And that's why what we do should be always constitutional, and we should have people on the bench who understand what that means. And um, this opening on the court has shown us that we're deadlocked 4-4 on many issues, many issues. Is that what we want, to have different rules on immigration in one center of the country? And This is one nation, last I checked. And yet, my Republican friends have no interest in filling this. That is disrespectful, most of all, to the people of this country who deserve a fully functioning Supreme Court. It is particularly disrespectful to our president. They keep saying, the president should pick the, he is still the president. Since when does the Constitution, you have to look at Article 2, Section 2. And it clearly says, when there's a vacancy, the president shall nominate for the Supreme Court, and the Congress shall advise a consent. It doesn't say, unless the Congress doesn't like the president. I'm sorry, it's not there. So if you're, if you're, if you're a conservative and you have a literal reading of the Constitution, show me where it says, uh, oh, it's the year of an election. Then the president doesn't have the right to nominate. It's ridiculous. But the art of tough, we have to persuade. So maybe if the election goes the way I want it to go, uh, there'll be some movement. Or if the Senate is, is taken by the Democrats, we'll see movement. Or we'll see no movement and we'll be totally paralyzed with a 4-4 and maybe we'll have seven, and maybe we'll have six, and maybe we'll have five. I am saying, until we the people make this an issue, along with our violence problem, we, we have to tear these issues. And there's a lot of important ones up there. I'm not saying they're the only two. Maybe there's three or four. There's, there are a hundred issues. But those should be at the top, because without a functioning Supreme Court, I dare say, the government can't really function. And I'm hopeful, and, and I will close with this. You could not find a more qualified person than Merrick Garland. You could look up and down this country. I'm telling you, it's unbelievable. All sides believe that this man is fair. All sides 
believe this man is just. All sides believe this man is super qualified. That's what it should be. And if the Republicans want to filibuster because he said something they don't like, they can do that. But give the guy a vote. And so part of my legacy, going back to the beginning of the question, is pushing for a vote, an up or down vote on Merrick Garland. Um, the conventions are coming up, and they'll highlight many things, but what will you do to encourage the younger generation to vote, and why do you think it's important? When I say everything is on the line, I mean everything is on the line. You know, whether there's peace, whether there's war, whether there's internal conflict in our country, whether America's place in the world is where it should be, whether we keep alliances or we lose them, whether we make progress, more progress toward women's equality, you know, the LGBT community, whether they move forward, everything. Whether we make sure we look at student debt and take care of that issue, and for that I thank Bernie very much for adding that issue so passionately to the discussion. Whether people finally in the middle class can have childcare and where two in the family have to work. And these are issues that for young people, it's everything. I mean, for old people, we've managed to uh, get by and we're okay, you know? We don't want people fooling around with our social security and there are plans to give that all over to Wall Street, which we've beat that before, but that will rear its ugly head again. So for every age group, it's important, but particularly for the young people. The young people have grown up in an America that was moving toward more tolerance for everybody. And they've seen some of the difficulties they're facing in their lives, reaching the dream, and getting reasonable pay. Are we going to raise the minimum wage so that you don't live in poverty if you work at the wage, or are you going to do away with it? Where There's a big movement to just do away with federal minimum wage. So I don't think it's too hard of a lift to explain to young people why they should be involved. I just hope that they don't, because they say no candidate is perfect, which I will, if I get the chance, explain to them, that's true, and no person is perfect. You might be, but other than that. Um, so let's not look for perfection. Let's look for a vision, and let's work hard in this election to make sure the person who has that overriding vision of America as one nation, united, wins, and that that person is not there to fight for the special interests, but to fight for all of us. That's what I would tell the young people. So, okay, the, the last question is uh, somewhat in a similar vein. It's about what's next. It says, if Hillary Clinton is elected president, would you be open to serving in her administration? Yeah. And if so, what role would you be interested in serving? Okay. Uh, no, I'm not interested in serving in an administration. 
But what I am interested in is helping her and helping us with issues on a one-by-one. So if there is a particular issue that has to be addressed, whether it's climate change agreements, whether it's, you know, equality for women, whether it's... Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.